0: From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke. And in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. While many Blue Sky episodes feature high-profile guests, I also think there's a lot to be gained by hearing from people who are less well-known but are blazing trails and making a difference in ways that should make us all feel more optimistic about our future. My guest today is one of these people. Sean Legister is a private equity professional as well as the founder and curator of the popular newsletter, Monday Morning Lift. He currently works on strategic partnerships for BDT, and MSD Partners, a firm he joined last year after more than 11 years at Goldman Sachs. As you'll soon learn, Sean is one of these people who not only does well with the job at hand, but also takes extra steps to continuously improve himself and lift up his colleagues and the subscribers he's attracted to his twice-weekly newsletter. There'll be plenty more biographical information about Sean in our conversation, so let's get right to it. John Legister, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Bill.
0: So we're going to get into more details about your background and your upbringing, but I want to start with a college to career question for you. So you went to a small liberal arts college, full disclosure, we went to the same place, Amherst College. You're a lot younger than I am. We didn't overlap, but you majored in English and Black Studies, and then you wind up in Goldman Sachs. Can you explain that transition?
1: Yeah, I would call that, uh, I'd call that luck. I'd call that faith. I'd call that hard work. I'd call that uh, a little bit of everything. But so I really, really, really wanted to major in Black Studies. And I remember, Bill, when I called my mom, who both my parents were born and raised in Jamaica. I'm a first-generation college student. And so when I called my mom to tell her that I wanted to major in Black Studies, she goes, you know, Sean, if you want to learn about Black people, go to the library and read a book it was a massive kind of, you know, culture shock, Bill, because here I was this, you know, young, black, impressionable man who went to one of the best liberal arts schools in the country, which I didn't know at the time. And I wanted to do something that I thought would help me learn about people who look like me from a different lens, right? Because it was English, history, social studies, law, all of that in one. And so for my mom to say that to me, I was like, whoa, this this is mind boggling. Only later did I realize what she meant. And I can go back to that. But it was crazy because when President Obama was elected, I remember her calling me, leaving a message on my phone saying, Sean, I never thought I'd live to see the day where a black man would be elected as president of the United States of America. So if he could do it, you can major in whatever it is you want to major. Wow.
0: So he was elected. He was elected when you were at Amherst. At Amherst.
1: And so again, just another, you know, just whoa moment. But then I thought, okay regardless of how I feel in the world, when people see quote unquote black studies, rightfully, wrongfully, I think there are gonna be images in their head, which may often preclude me from getting opportunities that I would have otherwise had. And we can come back to even why my mom named me what she named me, but I took up English because I had this thought where one, I think communication is critical. And as I've often said, you can be the smartest person in the room but if you can't get others to believe what you're saying or articulate your idea appropriately, then it's kind of all for naught. And so, hence the Black Studies and English double major. I say all that now, fast forwarding a little bit, because I literally applied to Goldman through the Goldman Sachs website, right? Like, I, I didn't have this idea that I wanted to be in high finance and be on Wall Street, any of these things. But again, you know, they say you are the whatever the product of the five people you spend the most time with. And a lot of my friends were interviewing for Wall Street jobs. And so I literally applied to Goldman through the Goldman Sachs website. And I was leaving track practice one day during J-term, which is at Amherst, the kind of interim time in January between you know fall semester and spring semester when all the winter athletes are there. And I get a message on my phone, Sean, this is XYZ from the College Career Accounting Center. Please call me back. Have some good news. So, call her back, and she essentially says, You know, Sean, today's your lucky day. Mr. XYZ from Goldman's going to be here tomorrow interviewing students on campus. He has 30 minutes for lunch. He saw that you applied on the Goldman website, but not through the College Career Accounting Center. He'd like to interview you. <laughs> I'm like, Lucky day. <laughs> like, right. people study for months, you know, for an interview. I'm going to send you walk in there tomorrow, kind of cold turkey. So, I did everything I could. You know, with a a night's notice to try to get up the curve, as they say, on who this gentleman was, what he did at the firm, you know, how I could kind of have the talking points. So long story short, walk in the next day, dressed to the nines, as ready as I could be, given 24 hours of preparation. And uh, we had a good conversation. But candidly, Bill, interpersonally, I thought we really hit it off. But when it got down to the questions, why finance? Why banking? Why Goldman? I was candid. And I said, you know, this would be a great opportunity for me to just learn and and to see what banking's about and just understand it and whatever else I said. And I'll never forget, he just looked at me and he goes, you know, Sean, when I'm interviewing 100 people, 99 of whom know why they want to be here, it's very difficult to offer you a seat. And again, (laughs) just like a gut punch, Bill, because he wasn't wrong. But what I realized in leaving that interview was, First off, if there were 99 people who woke up and said, I want to be an investment banker, I was definitely not friends with them.
0: <laughs> well, I was going to say half of those 99 were saying what needed to be said in the interview, and they probably didn't believe it in their gut. You were, you were authentic.
1: hundred percent. And so that <laughs> was kind of the aha moment for me where, whether it was that authenticity, which I think cuts both ways, I think it's you know blocked me from getting in certain doors. And we'll obviously come back to this because I think that that was a uh, the universe sending me a message, but it's allowed me access to other rooms that most people wouldn't even think about getting into, or wouldn't know what to do when they get there. I think for me, that was a wake-up call in terms of not only preparation, but pedigree and all the accoutrement, so to speak, that come with being even being able to even enter that room. So I actually reached out to a family friend um, who was a neighbor of my best friend growing up, and told him this story. And I'd reach out to him prior to going to the interview as well. And he said, you know, Sean, maybe banking isn't it for you, but I think your skill set is very applicable to sales and trading. Ah. And I said, great. What's that? (laughs) (laughs) So that's how green I was with all these things. And looking back though, whether it's, You know the merchant bank, the investment bank, the consumer part of the bank, the sales and trading division, which all of these have different names now. But I say that because the bank is so multifaceted. But it was through this gentleman taking a shot on me, kind of schooling me to the game, that after I bombed the interview, was vulnerable with him. He told me about sales and trading. I have to imagine in some way, shape or form, he helped me get the super day. I did the super day. And when I tell you about those interviews, like it's crazy. But that's kind of my path to how I got to uh, Wall Street. So
0: that first door closed and you found another one and you went in a different way.
1: Amazing. hundred percent story of my life.
0: Sean is not the first blue sky guest to credit a strong mother for making him the person he is today. And for any frequent listener to this podcast who might be playing blue sky bingo, you can block the square that mentions immigrants as being the ultimate optimist coming to this country from Jamaica. Sean's mother does everything she can to prepare her son for success in her adopted home, and you'll learn more about that in our next segment. I also appreciated Sean's story about answering honestly the question asked in his first Goldman Sachs interview. It didn't land him the opportunity, but that didn't stop him, and when a friend who understood the industry well advised him of another way in that would be better suited to his skill set, Sean went
1: for it and was successful.
0: Getting back to our conversation, I asked Sean to tell me more about his family.
1: So I grew up with a single mom. I have three brothers and one sister, but I'm the only child for my mom and my dad. Uh, people say I'm the baby. I say I'm the youngest. So it's just a little different. <laughs> but um, I grew up with one brother. So we have the same mom, but a different dad. And my mom is arguably my best friend, right? She's my rock. She's my force. She's someone who I looked up to, and I am a walking embodiment of her. I say that because my mom, again, being a single black woman on her own since she was 13, she's one of 11, born and raised in Jamaica. She came here, went to community college, kind of put herself through school to then be able to be a nurse. She had me. Um, But she would often tell me that there were times when she worked at IBM back in the day where she would see how people who were interviewing other folks would see resumes and would see a certain name and just pass the resume on. And so it's just one of those things where most people don't talk about that. And I'm not going to sit here and say it's outright racism. But what I will say is there are a lot of things that a lot of people don't see. And so I say that because my mom was smart enough, witty enough, clever enough. You call it what you want. To say, hmm, so my dad's name is Earl, but everyone called him Patrick, and so she named me Sean Patrick, with the thought being, no one's going to see Sean Patrick register on a resume and necessarily think that there's going to be a 6'3", wide-smiling, black dude walking in the door.
0: Irish kid from Amherst.
1: Exactly. And so once you get in the door, then it's so much more about what you do. But her kind of brilliance was recognizing that there are a lot of things that defeat people before they even show up, or hypothetically speaking, if my name was, you know, stereotypically but African-sounding or, you know, looked a different way, then I may not even have that opportunity to get in the door.
0: Wow. And so you get in the door on the campus of Amherst College, you know, a a school that's made great efforts at getting more first-generation students, more diversity, but still an old-school Largely white, historically waspy campus. What was that like?
1: Well, I mean, uh, I've been around white people my whole life. <laughs> <Like> I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it was very hard for me. It's funny. I actually think high school was more difficult for me than college. And so people say, Sean, how did you play two sports? How were you a double major? I was trained that way, right? Like I had the discipline. So I went to Hackley School, which is in Tarrytown, New York. And I often say that is the best decision I never made because my mom put me in that school. And I started in 2000 in sixth grade. And it was funny because, again, Bill, at the time, what do you know when you're however old you are in sixth grade? I'm like, I'm not leaving Austin. Like, I love it here. All my friends are here. And she's like, no, no, I'm not really asking you. Like, I'm telling you that this is happening. <laughs> and I'm a chronically poor test taker. But by the grace of God, I did well enough on the test at the time to get into Hackley. And it was between myself and one other gentleman Uh, in terms of uh, as the story goes the last two slots and again by the grace of god i was chosen and that Opportunity change the trajectory of my life because I learned about whether squash, lacrosse, all these things I had no idea what they were. What I'm getting, you know, culture to them or acclimated to them, such that when I get to Amherst and there's a squash team and they got the tennis team, and they got the hockey team, I'm like oh yeah, right, I, I know what all this is now. So I had all this exposure before. Um, So it's not that Amherst was difficult for me outright. I think I've appreciated being sometimes a large fish in a small pond. And quick tangent, but there was a story during the interview at Goldman. There was a gentleman who, he was a mortgage trader. And he looked at me and he goes, 6'3", black football player. Why'd you go to Amherst? Like, do you suck at football? Why didn't you go to Michigan? And I I just sat there like, yo, like what's happening right now? But I, I could see laced in his question was, if I was this much of a physical presence why didn't i go to a bigger school and play at a bigger level whereas my thought had long been i wanted to make sure i used football to get access to things as opposed to letting football use me but i say all that because then being able to you know get into a school like amherst and what i would think was thrive uh depends who you ask but um thrive uh holistically there was super important
0: so I'm starting to see a pattern with you in terms of, you said, two sports, double major. Uh, You get to Goldman Sachs and, you know, stereotypically, at least by reputation, you know, crazy hours, hard work, competitive, and yet. Not only do you thrive professionally, but you go above and beyond. And I don't know which came first. You tell me, Monday Morning Lift or Breakfast Bites, but whichever came first, I'd like to talk about it.
1: Yeah, uh, Monday Morning Lift came first. And so the-
0: Tell us about Monday Morning Lift because I'm a happy subscriber to your newsletter. So tell us about it and why are you doing this?
1: Uh, I appreciate that. So Monday Morning Lift is a double entendre and it was founded, spawned, created, you name it in- I believe it was the summer of 2009, but I was actually interning. Funny enough, two things. I was interning at Octagon, which is a sports agency headquartered in McLean, Virginia. And my best friend, who I mentioned earlier, went to Georgetown undergrad. I lived and worked out with the Georgetown football team during that summer. So I'd wake up in the morning, I'd work out with the football team, hence lift, like physically lifting weights. And then I'd leave there and go to the internship in McLean, Virginia. And I would need an inspirational lift because I'm like, I don't really want to be here. I just worked out like I'm trying to chill. And so it's a double entendre. And that lift serves as the physical lift to get the muscles strong, but also the mental lift to get your mind right and in a place where you're ready to kind of attack the day. And so again, it started out as me just sending a couple quotes to a bunch of the interns. It was nothing that I thought I'd be doing, you know, over a decade later. But what started out uh, like a lot of things and baby steps and just planting seeds eventually spawned to, I got to Goldman. And I felt the same way. And again, when you first start, or sorry, at least when I first started, I didn't know my right hand from my left hand. I wasn't good at my job. I don't know what I was doing. So this was a five minute activity that allowed me to connect with other people, which in a lot of ways helps me get information, but also helps me build relationships. And I've just continued to do it. It's It's something that at least for me, Bill, is incredibly cathartic. And it's never been something where I'm focused on the metrics, right? Like, I don't care who joins versus who unsubscribes because it's so much more about the level of kind of humility, hunger, access... Grace, it provides me being able to kind of know that whatever's happening during my week, where I tend to use, and I don't know if it's the right side of the brain or the left side of the brain, whichever one's the quantitative versus qualitative, but knowing that my job enables, forces me to use one of those, this is my ability to then also continue to tap into the other side.
0: Yeah. And and so for those who don't subscribe, but who are about to, if they if they're paying attention, it's a series of generally it's a series of quotations inspiring, you know, often from books, I think, and sometimes poetry and sometimes rap music. And it's so clearly, though, there's a lot of curation. You've got a lot of curiosity. You have to read these things in the first place. So you said this is a five minute exercise. It's not it takes you more than five minutes has to. So you put some you put some time and energy into this. So what what do you think drives you to do that?
1: Yeah, well, t- to be clear, I said what began as a five minute exercise. Yes, yeah, it is way okay, longer than five minutes now. maybe that first one was
0: simple, but the one I get every Monday and Friday <laughs> is way more than five minutes.
1: Yeah, well, well, quick point to that. So people are always like, why don't you know why is it called the Monday morning lift and why does it come out on Friday? And so when I started at Goldman, it used to come out every single day. But then obviously, as I got up the curve and actually had to do my job, I didn't have time to do it every single day. And then from a branding perspective, FML has a very different connotation. So I was like, why even bother with that? We can just keep it MML and then keep the branding consistent. So why do I do it? I do it because I need it. I do it because it allows me to connect with people. I do it because it forces me to be introspective. And I do it because I think what a lot of people lack, Bill, is accountability. And so knowing that no matter where I'm at in my life or what's going on, as long as I have internet connection, essentially, I can do this, it kind of drives me. And it's one of those things where if you ask anyone, like there's a whatever thousand million newsletters out there, why do people read mine? I don't know. You you can answer probably better than I can. But at least what keeps me going is it's not that what I'm doing is so incredibly unique. It's that the duration of time, I think, has made others kind of wither or fall away. Whereas again, the race, if it's a sprint, anyone, March Madness, anyone can win one game, but more often than not, the better team wins in a seven game series because now you're having to deal with the adversity. And so for me, having done it for, you know, over a decade now, it's something that, again, it, it drives me, it, it I thrive on it, but it's just super unique because to your point, it's something that is authentic. And so anyone can just, and people say, why don't you just use chat GPT? And it, it gives you a bunch of quotes. Well, that's not what it's about, right? Like to me, it's not just on quotes on a page. As much as that curation process allows me to engage with others, there's often books that I'm currently reading. It can be very contemporary, whether it's about Juneteenth or a new artist that came out and I'm listening to his or her song. So I think it's something very unique in that if you were to pull up an MML from, you know, Monday in two thousand whatever fifteen depending on time of year, you may get something in that edition that is very unique to that, which, and I'll land the plane for this portion, but it's funny, Bill, because when people are like, oh, you know, Sean, I loved your theme this week. I'm like, oh yeah, what was the theme? And they're like, oh, like this quote, this quote, this quote. And I'm like, "Hmm," because I never write with a theme. Now, maybe things come out in the subconscious, but I think that's the power of it is if these were always my words, people may feel like I'm speaking at them or I'm telling them something. Whereas by lacing it with quotes, people can feel something on their own terms and one not have to ever tell me that they feel something. But if you read it enough, I think it will inevitably change the way you live because you are now engaging in the text in a way where, yeah, my name is the one who's sending the email, but the the context itself is something that you get to engage with on your own terms.
0: Yeah, right. No, that, that puts it really well. Because when I read it, I feel like I get to know you better because you're the guy who chose these quotes. (laughs) They're not your words, but just the act of curation tells me something about you and it runs everything from advice about, you know, investing compound interest (laughs) to, to authenticity, to hard work, to accountability. So it's kind of the, it's kind of the whole picture. And it's one of the reasons I respond to it. I'm sure others do as well, because there's kind of, I hate to say there's something for everyone, but there's kind of something for everyone in what you do.
1: Uh, It's very cool. See, it's funny that you say I've never, I've had one other person tell me that, Bill, and this is someone who I knew from high school, like he knew me when I was a lot younger. And so for you to say it, I think is ironic and unique because, so I went to therapy camp during my garden leave between Goldman and starting my new job. And it was called OnSite. And I think everyone should do it. I'm a huge proponent of executive coaching, therapy, all that stuff. But it's funny because the power of OnSite is they talk about 70 to 75% of what you get from OnSite is through someone else's experience. And so often, if you have an executive coach or a therapist, you're speaking one-on-one with that person. Whereas so often, for me at least, insights come when you engage with something else such that whatever you're thinking in your mind is now sparked with something else. And so you just saying that made me think of it because I would actually flip that back on you and say, you're learning about yourself Mm. by learning something about me. Otherwise you wouldn't keep reading it.
0: Hearing how Sean's mother thought through what she'd name him should make us all stop and think about how much we've allowed race to complicate our society. The fact that his mom even had to consider all of this is amazing but understandable. And we'll hear more in this conversation about the disappointing complexities that differences in skin color bring to the workplace. And back to Sean's mom, she really does sound incredible. Her son didn't wanna switch schools, but she got him into the private Hackley and made him go. And this prepared him well for his college experience and his career thereafter. And now to check off your next Blue Sky Bingo Box, Sean Legister is yet another lifetime learner. Not content to simply do well on his job, he's constantly being influenced by books and music and decides to launch his own newsletter, Monday Morning Lift. He says he started this work as much for himself as he did it for his readers. Getting back to our conversation, I wanted Sean to talk about yet another effort he initiated at Goldman Sachs that was risky and well outside the confines of his job description. He called it Breakfast Bites, and here's how that came about.
1: I started out, I don't remember what year it was, it must have been 2018, I believe. But I remember walking into my comp discussion that year. It was my boss and my skip manager, the person who ran the entire business. And the person who ran the entire business essentially said to me, you know, Sean, you have to be careful with who you tell your story to because... more people you tell your story to, the more everyone else is going to think that someone else is taking care of you. And I was like, got it. However, if I felt like everyone in this room was actually telling my story, I wouldn't feel the need to tell other people. And this person goes, are you saying you don't trust me? And I was like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. I'm not saying I don't trust you. I'm just saying I want to make sure that my story is getting out there authentically. And Whatever, we finish the conversation. I end up leaving with the gentleman who, and my boss at the time was a gentleman who hired me. And he basically says to me, dude, like 99.9% of what you said in that room was okay, but you can't tell the person writing your checks that you don't trust them. And I was like, but I don't. He's like, no, no, I know you don't, but you can't say that. And I'm like, got it. And so again, this is like January, February of 2018. And so as time progressed, I really thought about um, what my skip manager had said. And by the way, there's definitely some truth in that, particularly in big organizations, because people want to, everyone wants to feel like they're part of a success story, but people want more, you know, more kind of equity in that because then they're also benefiting from it, trading on it, et cetera. And in in large firms, and I don't think this is, you know, idiosyncratic to Goldman as much as it is, I think, a fact of reality, but in a lot of these firms, information is currency. And so to be able to have the high riser, the you know person who went to a liberal arts school, who's black, who's in that, like a lot of these things come with currency to them, no pun intended. So I go through 2018. And I'm just thinking about what I could do to, as I mentioned, get my story out there in an authentic way that isn't hurting, whether it's myself or others around me, whether or not I believe that to be true based on what this person said. And honestly, Bill, I think a lot of this business game and in particular private equity, I think boils down to two things. And to be clear, this is an oversimplification, but I think this to be true, access and relationships. Because to your point, if you have proximity to power and or relationships with people. I remember one of my mentors at Goldman had always said to me, you know, Sean, unique relationships get unique things done. And it's powerful because so much of what I had done at Goldman was act as an intermediary between two people. But if two people can do something themselves, why wouldn't they? So, you know, I go through this year and I was like, wait, why don't I do something? I have all these relationships with senior people. And I remember what it was like when I first started at Goldman Rice Struggle through my series tests and failed some of the tests. And so people saw me as fitting a lot of the stereotypes, et cetera. But I'm like, why don't I use some of my access to make it so it isn't just about me, but bridge the gap between others who may look like me, but who may not have that access? Because then I'm solving two things. One, I'm getting my story out there by interacting with these senior people, but it's no longer, hey, Sean's all about Sean. And not that that had been the case necessarily, but hey, Sean's telling his story, but bringing other people along in the process, which I think is super powerful. And so I started in August 2018. I think it was at the end of 18 was when I got David Solomon on. And that was super powerful because I remember there was another mentor. And just
0: to pause there, David Solomon, for those who don't know, it can be confusing because his name's Solomon, but he is CEO was he CEO
1: at the time? Yep. He, he was CEO the Goldman newly Sachs. announced, newly minted uh, okay. CEO Gomez Sachs. So this, was but, a, this
0: was a big get, as they say.
1: Oh, massive <laughs> get. And by the way, this proved, this provided credibility and validation of this project. Because, you know, we had, a, we had people the first couple of months and I remember a senior mentor saying, he was like, look, dude, I don't know if people really care about this. And so you either need to get a big name or you may have to end this. And I'm like, dog what like people don't care about this like i don't need people to care about this necessarily but again some of these things that looking back now people claim and i was able to speak on the exchange at gs podcast and it was great there were times where people were telling me to get rid of this even after it was successful people are telling me to get rid of this like they may use this against you blah 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 and so the funny part and i use funny kind of you know loosely tongue-in-cheek But what's crazy, Bill, is looking back, do I think that everyone who spoke on Breakfast Bites was doing it because they really cared about me or the cause? Hell no. But I didn't need them to, right? Because if they could come on and then reach out to David or whatever other senior person had spoken on Breakfast Bites and say, hey, I did this thing, it was so cool, and they got kind of credit for it. All we were after was the access and what I realized is the ability for some of the black professionals to now be able to bridge a gap where if they then reached out to some of the senior professionals themselves, no longer could their boss or someone else say, Why are you reaching out to the senior person? How do you know them? Because I would, what I was actually solving for implicitly, Bill, is I remember being that first, second, third year analyst on the desk, not seeing a lot of senior people who look like me, but also not being able to access them. So now for me to be able to provide that level of access, I think was solving so many things that I don't even know if some of the younger black folk really took advantage of the way that I wish they had.
0: So set that scene. So you have you have the CEO, is, they come to a conference room, is this a virtual thing, or in, and who's who's invited to attend, and how, how did you pull all that together?
1: Yeah, so, The power of Breakfast Bites from inception has always been going back to, you know, kind of the Hamilton line, which obviously Hamilton was after Breakfast Bites started, but you want to be in the room where it happens. And so much of business and trade, et cetera, is, again, about that level of access and being close to where the action is. And so Breakfast Bites initially started in a room with six people and one senior leader. And that then grew to being, for example, David Solomon, we just went to a conference room and, you know, there were, I think, 45 people in that session, but literally 45 black professionals sitting in a room with David Solomon, unscripted, asking him whatever we wanted. I would moderate the session. And by the end, I would save whatever five, 10 minutes to open it up for people to ask any sort of question they want. And it was open to anyone from analysts to partner but the caveat was i sent the distro list out it wasn't through hcm it wasn't through any official means because in some ways and i hope this doesn't you know have some racial undertone that gets people upset but this to me was like an underground railroad sort of thing where i wasn't trying to throw it in people's faces in terms of hey look at all this access we're getting but i was trying to provide a bridge for people who actually wanted to use it and i say that because again bill i wasn't doing this to pad stats to my resume to say hey i'm doing all these diversity initiatives that's not what this was about this wasn't about me using it to to gain clout internally this was about truly providing that bridge and so i think the distro went out to anywhere from 220 to 260 people because then it went to different divisions but i would say in any session we get anywhere from you know 12 to 45 people and wow. so it's interesting because you're like, wait, why wouldn't everyone want this level yeah. of access? Like, it's like what am I missing? Like why wouldn't you show up? And I would hear the whole gamut, right? I'd hear people say, "Oh, you know, Sean, you do it before the open and after the close and like I have a client event, so like I can't make it. I'm super busy." To which I just smile, Bill, because I'm like, okay, I hear you. If you if you've if you couldn't come to one or two, completely understand. But dog, I've had 60 plus and you haven't been to one. So don't tell me that you're too busy. This is just not a priority for you, which is fine. But then I never want to hear you say, oh, I don't have access. Because I think another thing, Bill, that really bothers me, and this goes back to kind of that notion of optimism, is, and my football coach at Amherst would always say this, but, and he quoted this from someone else, but 10% of life is what happens to you, and 90% is how you respond to it. And so for me, I tend to view things through the prism of Whatever happens to you, you can view it as a prison or pedestal. And so for me, I've taken a lot of these things and used them as stepping stones to get to wherever it is I want to go, as opposed to solely playing victim mentality and having it be this, you know, this boulder over my head that I can't get past. And so because of that, I knew that I was the guy who claimed, oh, I don't have this level of access. How do I get in front of these people? People are blocking me. And whether or not that was true, I wanted to be able to remove that excuse from other people because, you know, everyone's going to face their own level of adversity. But if I could help remove that one piece, I thought could be pretty powerful.
0: The whole model is amazing, too, because I'm sitting here as a uh, as a former white CEO. I'm still white, but I'm not a CEO anymore. You (laughs) gave a gift to Solomon. I mean, that, that's the other thing. I mean, he's trying, hopefully, to, to create a more diverse workforce and, and create more upward mobility for folks once they're in and, and develop relationships around and build morale, et cetera, et cetera. You've handed him a gift by filling that room, right? I mean, it, it works every which
1: way. So can I tell you another story? Yeah, please. So I remember when I, and this is multiple years after I left Hackley. There's a gentleman there, Chris McCall, who's no longer there. I believe he was the head of admissions when we had this conversation. And again, full transparency, I was a financial aid student at Hackley. And I remember speaking to Chris and we had this long-winded conversation because my best friend in the world was not a financial aid student at Hackley, paid full boat. Again, this dude and his family also changed my life. They're great. And I remember speaking to Chris and he goes, Sean, let me ask you a question which students do you think benefit most from students on financial aid? (laughs) I'm like, dog, this is like easy question. Like, what am I missing? I'm like, Chris, the kids on financial aid, like, what are we talking about? And he goes, no, the students who are paying full boat, because more often than not, they wouldn't have to interact or wouldn't have interact or been around students who are on financial aid. And it was like a mind (laughs) blown.
0: Never occurred to you.
1: Bill, like, I was like, Whoa. But it just it proves what you just said, where here I am thinking I'm doing something just for the black population at Goldman. But there are so many senior white leaders, senior fill in the blank leaders who want access to this pipeline, people, you name it because, oh, we can't find them. All the things people say. But this whole notion of access and relationship cuts both ways, because when you're super senior, no one tells you the truth. Everyone's trying to kiss the ring. People are doing whatever they can to get in front of you to have you now in a room with the black population, you name it, of the firm who wants that access. But in an unfiltered, there's no like ATM. You have to say this. It's, you know, super contrived. Looking back, I think I really understand why so many, it got to the point where senior leaders were like reaching out to me, asking if they can speak. And I'm like, yo, chill, chill, chill. I (laughs) totally
0: believe it. No, I believe it. This whole story about Breakfast Bites is fascinating. In addition to telling us more about what Sean is all about, it also provides a window into the office dynamics at a prestigious firm like Goldman Sachs. We see this when some say, be careful, Sean, people might question your motives. Or when other black employees stay away from these gatherings because they don't want to be seen as being part of any kind of subgroup within the company. And Sean is refreshingly candid about his own motivation he was hoping to get himself some more access and visibility, but was also clearly interested in lifting up others around him. And as he says, building a bridge between his colleagues and senior management. And his quote here is Optimism Institute gold. 10% of life is what happens to you and 90% is how you respond to it. We here believe that the world will continue to get better, but only because of all the work that gets done in that 90% space. Getting back to my blue sky conversation with Sean Legister, I asked him to reflect on something I heard him say once, that he wanted to be a lighthouse for others. And I also wanted to know what it is that drives him to so often go above and beyond the
1: call. I don't know is the short answer. I think, I think a lot of it goes back to I'm on this constant journey of self-improvement. And I say that because, and again, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. So I hope this doesn't come out incorrectly, but I think growing up with a single mom did wonders for me. And so the places where it hurt me, and then I said it to my wife last night, but like, I didn't have anyone teach me how to shave. I didn't have anyone teach me to throw a football. And I played football at Amherst, right? And I don't think my dad came to one of my college football games. As hard as that was to stomach and grapple with and deal with, I think in a lot of ways, I've yearned for connection. And in particular, from senior males who I could learn from. So instead of just having one male and my dad who I can go to and ask all these questions, I think I've been blessed with a litany of people who have become real mentors, father figures in my life, who I can reach out to, lean on, get information from, who have all like pierced and goaded and helped me become a better version of myself. And so it's funny because I also quoted this in the kind of Goldman podcast, Bill, but like, I work in finance. We talk about risk all day, every day, but people don't take personal risk, right? So many people are just comfortable or just happy to be there. And as, you know, the famous Dr. Eric Thomas says, like, I didn't get this far just to get this far. And so the understanding that I want to keep going and that in some ways I am a trailblazer, but I'm not a trailblazer just because I want you to see me as this black dude who's doing X. Like I am who I am and I'm black right? It's not a but, it's not an or, it's an and. But I say that because another quick story, but you talked about, you joked earlier about getting David Solomon. It was like a big get for breakfast bites. I remember the next year, I really wanted to get Bio ogun Lessey, who's the current chairman of the board at Goldman. And I remember, and I literally listened to the Matthew McConaughey on Lex Friedman podcast this morning as I was working out. And he tells a story about You know, if something happened 30 seconds earlier or 30 seconds later, who knows if he would have met, whether it was his wife or another thing. It's like, as Brene and many other people, Brene Brown and many other people talk about those sliding door moments. And I remember I'm getting up, I'm moving apartments and my movers are supposed to come. And they call me and they're 20 minutes early to my apartment. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like I, you know, plan to be there at a certain time. And as I hang up the phone to go meet the movers, I get a call from my biggest client. At the time, my biggest client's like, "Hey, can you work these two orders for me?" Which, in you know, in sales trading jargon, was, "Can you take these two orders and buy the stock for me?" I can't say no to my largest client. I'm not just going to hand this order off to someone else. So I, I physically need to work this order. So I do it. I do it rather quickly. Whatever. I run out, and I'm running out of the building. And who walks out of the building in front of me? Bio Ogunlesi. And I'm like, no way. And as I often tell this story, Bill, like I see Bio, who is the uh, one of the co-founders, if not the founder of GIP, which is a large infrastructure private equity firm. And he daps up the security guard. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is crazy. Because for <laughs> this dude who is, you know, this powerful, rich, you name it, fill in the blank, to have the cognizance to shake the doorman's hand. By the way, he didn't know I was watching him. Like, he, I think this is who he was. So I'm like, yo, I gotta say something to this dude. So I run up to him, I introduce myself, told him that I knew his son from Amherst, blah, blah, blah. But I only tell that story, and it's much longer, but I only tell that story, Bill, because this is what I'm talking about. So many of my friends would say, Oh my God, Sean, guess who I saw today? Be like who? They're like bio Owen Lessie. And I'm like, great. Wait, that's <laughs> the end of the story? Yeah, and I'm like, right. yeah, it was so amazing to see. I'm like, dog, what like if you see someone who either you want to interact with or take a chance or whatever. You got to shoot your shot because so much of this is the worst. And again, this is with the understanding that you're going to carry yourself with, with class, with humility. You're not going to, you know, embarrass yourself. But like you need to at least be willing to engage because the worst that can happen is you still tell the story and you say, I saw bio Owen Lessy and I said hi to him and I never heard from him again. But the upside of that, that the risk upside is asymmetric. And so that's how I think about my life and kind of my day-to-day. It's a
0: great story, and I think it's it's helpful for anyone listening because there, there's access and then there's, uh, I don't want to say, well, taking advantage of that access. right? So so I grew up in a uh, my dad was a media executive. He knew everyone in the business. When I was looking for jobs, I got the interviews because of who my dad was, frankly, but I showed up, I dressed up, I prepared. You know, it's, it's, I don't want to compare our two situations, but it's the same concept that you can you can get this access and you can meet these folks. But if you don't do the work, it's not going anywhere. If you don't take advantage of that opportunity, it's not going anywhere. And that's. I think that's important. You know, I was born on third base, but I always say I know a lot of people who were also, but they got stranded in scoring position, <laughs> and 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 didn't and didn't make it home. But it's true.
1: No. And but that's so real. It is. It is so real because at the end of the day. And whether, you know, home base to use this metaphor is connection, love, trust, money, wealth, fame, you name it. Yeah, you damn right. There's some people who are born <laughs> yeah. on third base. I could have been born on the way to first, yeah. but it's not about where you start right. because there are a lot of people, as you said, Bill, who are born on third base who don't know the game and they run or back they to get second. Picked off third, and there's some people who worse. are yeah, picked off. Like there's so many things that can happen that is not a function of where you start going back to Prison versus a pedestal, but okay, this is my lot in life, what am I gonna do with it?
0: It's poignant to hear Sean speak about missing out on having a father in his life, but also acknowledging the incredible gift it was to have such a remarkable mom. Back to continuous learning and self improvement, it's inspiring to hear how much Sean has actively sought out and learned from older, more senior men throughout the course of his life and career. It's also fun to hear him talk about running into the Goldman Sachs board chair and not just staring at him, but going up to introduce himself. Many optimists understand that life is going to present us with opportunities, but they're meaningless if you don't, as Sean says, shoot your shot. As I mentioned in the introduction, Sean is no longer working at Goldman Sachs, and I asked him to talk about his decision to leave the firm last year.
1: Why I left, I think I left because Goldman was an incredible place for me to start my career. And even when I look back on my time there, it is an incredible firm. Now, like in any relationship, just because it's incredible doesn't mean there weren't hiccups, doesn't mean there weren't things that went sideways, doesn't mean that there weren't times where you wanted to fight your brother or your closest teammate and you had an argument, right? There were definitely things that you know I really struggled with there and that I wish were different. But I say all that because if I didn't start my career at Coleman, I don't know that I'd be here now. And the one thing that I think is true, or there are many things that are true about Coleman, but I think there is a level of excellence and the way that they push you and drive you that I made the comment about. Amherst being easier for me than high school because I'd already built that discipline. I already built that accountability. I think the same is true. And that's not to say I'm necessarily killing it in my seat right now. Like I'm still on that growth journey, to be clear. But there's a way in which I was confident enough in my skill set, having built the acumen and relationships I did at Goldman to, one, going back to self-risk, taking a bet on myself and now join... What is now BDT and MSD Partners, which is a culmination of BDT, which is founded by Byron Trott, a PI Prio partner at Goldman, who essentially essentially built a $30 billion merchant bank with a private equity business. And then MSD Partners, which started in 1998 as MSD Capital, which was Michael Dell's family office, which has now evolved into a private equity firm. So BDT and MSD Partners is the GP. It's a private equity firm. And our core four, as I call it, are private credit, real estate, private equity, and growth. And so I am here a part of the team that is helping stand up our institutional capital formation business because many of our LPs to date have been ultra high net worth individuals. And so just figuring out who is the cadre of institutional investors we kind of want to partner with, I think is super important for the go forward of the firm but it's just interesting bill because i started my career at goldman i spent the first nine years on the public side as an equity cash sales trader that was a very transactional job but i think it helped me learn how to speak to a variety of client types and how to engage with different clients and then i moved to the merchant bank after not getting into stanford business school which was my dream school and i can tell that story too but i realized that moving to the private side i think would align better with what I wanted to do, which is truly build relationships for the long term, be far more analytical, and have relationships and opportunities that compound. And then in October of last year, I started uh, here at this new firm. And the if I was to codify into three reasons and not in this order, but why I made this jump, access, opportunity,
0: and compensation. There you go. And I believe from your bio, you are also still working on bringing folks up and giving access. I saw you're a Cristo Ray New York high school board member and participate in what I understand is sort of a mentoring program with them. Can you explain that? Cause I think it's, I think it says a lot about sort of what you're all about and the kind of impact you'd like to make on young people now that you're moving into your middle years.
1: <laughs> so I was on the board of Cristo Ray New York high school, and then also on the Rock House foundation and the quick two liners with both of them. So Cristo Ray is a Jesuit high school in East Harlem, New York. And this goes back to kind of the Georgetown days, but a friend of mine wanted to work there. And this is my senior year at Amherst, or maybe when I was about to join Goldman, but a friend of mine wanted to work there. We essentially did a dry run to the school. As she was walking around, I happened to see that a woman had a large Georgetown flag in her office. So I walked in, we struck up a conversation and she was like, oh, what are you going to be doing? And I was like, oh, I'm going to be working at Goldman. And I saw the, I saw the eyes light up and she's like, oh, would you like to join our advisory committee? Uh, so that's kind of how that started. But what I truly appreciated about Krista Ray, which got me from the advisory committee to then being, I would argue, the youngest uh, board of trustee member ever, if not at the time, um, in addition to then chairing the jobs board, etc., is I love the Krista Ray mission, which is giving... You know, underprivileged students an opportunity at a top class education, which will hopefully then get them to college. And again, I would say that the two other pieces about that is Creaser is unique in that one day a week, the students work, literally work at a corporation or have a job with the thought being going back to access. So many minorities, whether it's they get to college and they get in the working world and they don't know, they don't have the social capital to understand like how to engage, right? I literally made this joke to my wife over our trip last weekend. But I remember, and I made this because the waiter at the restaurant we were at in the Caribbean had a Fossil watch. And I remember one of my favorite watches when I was younger was this bold face Fossil watch. And I remember when I got to Goldman, someone said to me, like, don't wear that here. I was like, excuse me? And they were just like, yeah, nah. Like, that's just... So, and again, it's just a social capital of like what watch to wear, what belt to wear, what shoes to wear. There's so much that you're not going to read in a book that having this access to a high school student allows you to actually be ahead of the curve because not only are you getting working experience, but you're getting social capital experience of how to engage with folk, particularly ones who don't look like you if it pertains to corporate America. But the other piece of the Krista Ray model that I appreciated is Chris Ray doesn't have a football team. So for someone who spends so much of my upbringing in sports and knowing what sports has done to unlock opportunity in my life, again, for me to use my privilege and my access through sports to now be able to go back and pull up people who don't have those same opportunities, I think is super important to me. And then the Rock House Foundation is actually a foundation in Negril, Jamaica. It's associated with the hotel. So Negril and Sablamar, Jamaica. And as I said, my parents are both Jamaican, moms from St. Anne's Bay, dads from St. Elizabeth, with the nuance here being my mom put you know a premium on education throughout my life. But the hotel is in Negril, and the the school that they're building is in Sablamar, two places on the island that my parents are not from. So for me, it's my way to emblazon kind of my own fingerprints and etchings on something that you know is really, really dear to me. But it's my mom's island, but now I'm bringing Amazing. my own imprint to it.
0: Yeah. So you are uh, you are an incredibly inspiring guy. I'm going to keep in touch with you various ways, and I'm encouraging everyone to subscribe to the Monday Morning Lift but I have a feeling maybe every couple of years we're going to update your, your because you are just doing so many things and going in so many directions and they're all incredibly inspiring. And I'm, I'm so glad once again, you took time out of your busy schedule to talk to me. And I just, I just thank you for the time and your inspiration. And, uh, it's been a pleasure getting to know you.
1: No, I, I appreciate you, Bill. And in a lot of ways, this is this, that serendipity and that alchemy that we're talking about, right? Like, the MML and now we're talking about a variety of things and there may be business to do that like there's just so much here which again we didn't enter this this podcast isn't the first time we're speaking and I think that's super powerful because it's allowing us to go deeper in our own relationship but I thank you for even engaging and your ability to to pull certain stories out of me
0: there you go thank you Sean really appreciate it
1: thanks Bill take care
0: From my own experience, I can say that getting involved with volunteer opportunities at an early age can be extremely rewarding and fulfilling, and it's great to hear a young man like Sean talk about the impactful organizations with which he's involved. And in an effort to keep lifting people up, taking on the work he's tackling in Jamaica seems so true to who Sean is and is a fitting and touching tribute to his parents. I do look forward to keeping in touch with Sean and have a feeling he and I will have a lot more to talk about in a Blue Sky episode down the road. In the meantime, I'll keep learning more about him and I suppose myself by reading his terrific Monday Morning Lift newsletter. I hope you enjoyed this Blue Sky conversation with Sean Legister please consider leaving us a rating or review. So we'd love to hear how you think we're doing. And if you have ideas for future guests for our show, we're all ears. So please let us know. I also hope you'll consider following the Optimism Institute on social media for more uplifting content and news about upcoming episodes of Blue Sky. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke. And I thank you for listening.